ಭಗವತೋ ಅರ್ಹತೋ ಸಂಬುತಸ ನಮೋ ತಸ ಭಗವತೋ ಅರ್ಹತೋ ಸಂಬುತಸ ನಮೋ ತಸ ಭಗವತೋ ಅರ್ಹತೋ ಸಂಬುತಸ Yes, so as um, Ajahn uh, Munindu said, uh, I'm, I'm going away for a year on a sabbatical. The first uh, three months I'm, I'm going to travel a bit and then afterwards I hope to be uh, on retreat actually in, in Chitters, the monastery in Sussex, for eight months. They've got a big forest down there with, with wooden huts in it, so the idea for uh, practicing for a while in solitude. And then I hope to be back uh, next year in March. Actually, so I'm, I, I do come back uh, over Visak uh, in, in May this year um, just to visit. So it would be interesting just to be here as a visitor for a change after living here for nine years. Um, visitors are, are treated very well at home, so I'm really looking forward to that. <laughs> And uh, so for that reason, so then Ajahn uh, invited me, asked me to, to give a talk tonight, so, so to say uh, goodbye, so to speak, for a while. And uh, I thought I, I use this opportunity to talk a bit um, about the theme of uh, Kalyanamita, it's noble friendship, so Kalyanamita being the noble friend, uh, beautiful friend. Um, so that would be a very good theme. Partly because it was a good, it's a good thing. It, it came up in my mind, you know, when one goes away actually to be alone for a while, to actually um, reflect on, uh, on, on friendship. You know? uh, and uh, also, because I don't know whether Ajahn Manuel mentioned that, it's also today we've been actually celebrating the 20th anniversary of Ajahn Munindo coming here to, to Hanum, to the monastery. And um, it was certainly, definitely it was, it was uh, the... Uh, um, friendship that we, we struck in, in New Zealand about 10 years ago when, when we met in New Zealand, which actually brought me here uh, to Hanum in the first place. And it was certainly also um, not the only one, but an, an important factor of what um, kept me staying for these nine years in Hanum. And uh, it's, uh, I suppose, also going to be an important factor <laughs> among those that who uh, uh, I suppose are going to bring me back, bring, bring me back here to Hanum uh, next year. You know? So uh, to talk about uh, Kalyamita is also for me an opportunity to celebrate our friendship and to celebrate the fact of what a good um, noble friend Ajahn Munindo has been for me. And uh, when I was thinking about it, the one thought that came up, a memory came up uh, to my mind, is um, in my... Uh, early years as a monk, or I might still have been an Agaric at the time, uh, one of my first uh, teachers in the monastic life gave a, a talk about Kalyanamita. And this, this talk somehow uh, stayed with me, stayed in my mind. There are many occasions in the, in the suttas, in the, the recorded teachings of the Buddha, where uh, the Buddha talks about uh, Kalyanamita. Uh, but there's probably one particular famous incident, which is uh, a conversation that the Buddha had with, uh, with Ananda, one of his chief disciples and his attendant for uh, many, many years, in which the Venerable Ananda 
uh, was saying, also making that, uh, making this exclamation about how he's saying that uh, Kaliamita, noble friendship, having, having good friends, noble friends, is half of the holy life. And the Buddha replied to him, don't say that. And, and he said, it actually, it is the whole of the holy life. And it, it seemed, was to me, as it's at first kind of a surprising statement from the Buddha. And it seemed obviously also surprising to um, the senior monk who gave this talk at the time. He, he, he wanted to interp- interpret this, this, this sutta, this, this conversation between the Buddha and, and Ananda in a particular way. As some of you might know, Ananda always was, is described in the suttas and in the Vinaya sometimes as somebody who was particularly endearing. He was also very popular, was a very kind, very loving person, and somebody who very much appreciated friendship. He was, he, he, he was described as a very social kind of person. He, he, he liked to be with people and, and was sometimes be criticized, actually, for, for socializing too much. Uh, I think in the Vinaya it is uh, it's mentioning of... Uh, the venerable Anand and his sewing circle and things like that, which is kind of meeting with, with other monks and they would you know, do, uh, work together and then talk um, about practice, I suppose. <laughs> he was criticized for that and occasionally it was brought him in, in, in trouble also in situations. Where... And so right, in this Dhamma talk that I remember, uh, the teacher was thinking, well, surely this... It was it's not, not a surprise that Ananda, Ananda out of all the, all the uh, disciples of the Buddha that are mentioned in the suttas, would be the one who makes such a statement that actually noble friendship is half of the holy life. But that the Buddha would not only would top it, as it were, not only kind of endorse it, but in saying, criticizing him for saying it's actually the whole uh, of the holy life seemed a bit of a surprise. So he interpreted, interpreted it in a way that the Buddha certainly uh, couldn't have meant the friendship uh, with other people. So he thought it would rather possibly be a way in which the, the Buddha admonished Ananda or gave him a teaching, uh, reinterpreting, as the Buddha sometimes uh, did, well, it was one of his teaching styles uh, in, in, in the suttas, by reinterpreting the, the term for Ananda so that he basically uh, didn't refer to noble friends or noble friendship or beautiful friendship, but to uh, a f- friendship or re- a relationship to that which is beautiful, to that which is noble. No, so basically steering uh, Ananda away from the idea of, of socializing or being with other people, but to cultivate a relationship which is the beautiful or which is the noble, which then, in this case, in that, in that context, would then be a, a metaphor or, or in the quality of um, Nibbana or the goal of practice or the Dhamma as indeed sometimes in, in, in the Buddha was speaking about the Dhamma, his teaching, as beautiful in the beginning, beautiful in the middle, and beautiful in the end. You know? So that seemed to be a very a quite sensible interpretation. Um, yes, logic behind it. However, it so happens that the Buddha, if I remember correctly, in that particular instance, in the conversation with Ananda, if not there, then certainly in other places, the Buddha did very specifically go on to explain that that was indeed actually what he meant. He meant f- friendship um, uh, with, with noble friends, relationship with noble friends. He then made his point, or stressed his point, by pointing, in fact, to himself as the most perfect uh, example of a, of a noble or beautiful friend. Why? He said uh, to Ananda, with, without him, without the Buddha, he said, he said to Ananda, without me, you wouldn't be able 
to be here to do this, to live this life. You know? Because it was because uh, of the Buddha's realization and because of that magnificent, um, huge act of noble friendship of taking onto himself the burden, uh, not only to, to start to, to teach from his realization, but to actually uh, create the structures of uh, uh, monastic Gunansian Sangha, the Bhikkhu Bhikkhuni Sangha, and the wider structure of also the, the looking after the relationship between the, the ordained Sangha and the, the lay people to create what the Buddha calls the fourfold assembly of, of laymen, laymen, bhikkhus, and bhikkhunis. Um, that created the very structure, which very literally, of course, at the time, uh, or when Ananda was alive, it was entirely depending on the Buddha. No? It was, it was with him that he was living, and which has then uh, started this, this tradition that went through the uh, millennia um, of the teaching being preserved and passed down so that actually we can uh, benefit from it and practice within these structures and have access to these teachings, all going back to that initial act of noble friendship from the Buddha of making those uh, teachings and his realizations available. And not only making them available, but putting a lot of effort into it. And if you're familiar with, with the scriptures, you know it wasn't, it wasn't, in, it's, it, it gave, brought a lot of difficulties and, and trouble to the, to the Buddha's life, you know, for the uh, last, what was it, 45 years after his realization, you not know, to really put all his energy, all his life into um, getting this, this uh, organization started, which is uh, the, the, the Buddhist Sangha, which I think people say is now one of the very oldest surviving, functioning organizations in the world. So the Buddha, uh, throughout the teachings in other places, also points out this, this, this importance of this noble friendship, the availability of noble friendship, uh, for our practice, for our Development. Whenever the Buddha, almost uh, all the places, as I remember, where the Buddha talks about the gradual path, there's usually uh, a gradual development described from when we first get in touch with the teachings, you know, to picking up, practicing morality, starting to practice meditation, having the first insights and so forth, until the final liberation. Usually, the first step in that in that link, you know, leading to the final liberation, is of associating with good people. Association with good people, you know, it's the first condition. Right? Because we have to first, of course, get in, get in touch with uh, good teachings. That's, that's the way the first, in some way or another, come into our life. Whether it's good standards of moral behavior that we might learn from our parents or from, from teachers, maybe at school, or other people that we look up to when we are, when we are, when we are children, uh, to more spiritual teachings, properly speaking, or even the, the Buddhist teachings themselves, the Dhamma of the Buddha, probably, for all of us, it's truth, you can just remember back, you know, there would be a time when we first uh, would have heard about it in a way that we actually felt um, inspired, and we would have learned, you know, would have get, got interested and, and, and learned more about it through association with good people, you know, whether it's actually literally uh, friends or people that we that we felt attracted towards and, have, and spend time with, or you know, nowadays, you know, whether we, we start with with books or seeing videos or, or CDs or something, those those have of course all been produced and put out there by people you know, to, to, with, with with whom we we enter in a relationship you know, when we pick up those teachings. Uh, interesting though is that on on the other hand. 
you might also remember that uh, the Buddha often stressed that if we want to realize the benefits, the results of the Buddhist teaching, it's us who have to make the effort. Hmm? This saying of the Buddha that, that he was saying, I can uh, only point the way. And even, even a Buddha can only point the way. It's us, if you're interested in what the Buddha points out, we have to make the effort. We have to walk the way if you want to reach you know, what he's pointing at. So even uh, uh, the most perfect kind of noble friend and the most, according to his own self-assessment, the most you know, powerful um, spiritual teacher that could have been around or could possibly ever be around, a Buddha, a fully enlightened, self-enlightened Buddha, can perhaps have a very you know, a powerful a catalyzing effect on us, but ultimately can only point out the way. You know? Now, of course, a good teacher he doesn't perhaps is, is, can be a bit more than just point out the general direction. You know, that's somewhere over there, the way you go. You can point out lots of things on the way, but he can only point out. It's up to us you know, whether we follow the advice you know, and whether we actually make the effort. That's a, so that's interesting because there then the Buddha obviously seems to say that noble friendship, even the most you know, friendship with the most noble kind of person, is not the whole of the, uh, of the holy life. The holy life being you know, the way the, the Buddha referred to the, to the renouncing life of the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, but also, of course, you know, it applies also to you as lay people, you know, the life, um, the effort that we make towards a realization. So that seems to be a contradiction, doesn't it? The Buddha seems to contradict himself there. And uh, I find that a very uh, Im- Im- important point to take in because if we want to be clever, uh, we look at the, the suttas, uh, there are probably many other contradictions, perhaps apparent contradictions or maybe real contradictions that we can find and that we can wonder about. You know, you often you, you get into discussions about this. You know, why here the Buddha seems to be saying this and there the Buddha seems to be some- saying something else. It seems, doesn't seem to match something. The, I think the reason for that, and the way I understand it, has, is very intimately related to the way the Buddha saw himself. And the Buddha saw himself as a noble friend and the importance of noble friendship. And the way that Buddha, the Buddha actually approached this, uh, this task, he set himself on uh, teaching um, the way to, to free him from suffering. And the Buddha was also very clear about that. He, he, never, he never actually set up a system with some you know, idea of completeness of that is kind of logically, rationally constructed, and all that he hands out, like, say, maybe a, a, some philosopher might do, a metaphysical kind of philosopher, you know, about uh, the nature of the universe or the, 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 the nature of, of practice or the way or, or of self. You know, it's, not, it's not a philosophical teaching that he puts out there that we can then take home and look at and test and check uh, according to the uh, rational or logical assumptions, deductions, and inferences, and to, to see, you know, to refine and figure out so that it's all perfect and doesn't contradict itself. Right, the opposite. The Buddha actually, throughout um, his teaching, if you look at the Sutta, always says this is just one type of questions on interest that would look for that kind of categorical answers on, on such like matters. Uh, the Buddha would always um, decline, refuse to actually answer. You know, some of the, for example, in what's called the ten imponderables, the questions about the nature of the universe, whether there is a beginning to the universe, there's an end of the universe, what happens to an arahant after um, they die, um, even the question of, of whether there is a self or there, there's not a self. No? 
it's interesting. There's often a question that you get. You know, the people are puzzled about in Buddhism. You know, this is about not self. You know, is there self? So not a self. What is meant by that? As far as I know, as far as I remember, the only time in the whole canon, you know, also recorded scriptures, where the Buddha is actually asked point blank whether there is a self or there's not a self, the Buddha actually refuses to answer the question. Interesting enough. I think it's it's one it's one of those Brahmin wanderers. I think it's Vachagota, is it him? One of them. Or Dandapani. There are a few of them around. I don't remember who of it is. Uh, who comes to the Buddha and asks him this question. The Buddha refuses to answer. And again, in, in, this, in the, that story, it's Ananda afterwards who asks the Buddha, why, why didn't you, you know, reply to him directly? And the Buddha said, well, if I, if I would have uh, said, yes, there is a self, then I would have, uh, would have collided in his wrong view. Um, so obviously that's we can deduce from that from that answer that's perhaps what let's say it was Vachagota, maybe it was Tandapani or yet somebody else. Um, that was the view that he held, but the Buddha said, well, that's a, that was a deluded view. But he said, but if I had said there's no self, then I would have just um, increased his confusion, would have contributed to his, his confusion. Mm. So that's interesting. Very pragmatic answer. Now, if you just come from a mind, again, that's, that's looking for the, the rational, the logical, the definite, you know, categorical answer, and said, well, Okay, the Buddha was definitely said to have a self, that's, that's delusion. But he didn't say that not self is a delusion. He just said if I'd said that, then, then Vajraguta would have been confused because he, w- he wouldn't be able to grasp what that means. I would have got worried about, you know. And so, well, I'm not supposed to have a self, you know. Or, you know what, who am I then? What is this? You know, how is this possible? Then some people take that as, as proof then that actually the, the Buddha was teaching that there, isn't, there is no self. But on the other hand, then you look in the scriptures, the Buddha never said that as such, as much as he definitely never said that there is a self. So what did the Buddha say? And that's very interesting. This is just one example for the particular style in which the Buddha taught, a very important one, of course. But what the Buddha instead did, if he wanted to teach, if he introduces his teaching on, that we call the teaching on anatta, not self, he would always, instead of giving people a certain kind of theory, you know, some kind of idea, some kind of theory, a, a categorical statement that people could then grasp, he would always direct people to investigate very directly their experience, how it is as it is right now. For a very good reason, because if you just get a theory, idea, then it's just something, again, that we, we grasp at. You know, it gets it's in our head. It's something we can store information that we, we store in our head. And then we grasp with that. That becomes our, our identification. This part of the humor of the Buddha, you know, there's a, there's a teaching that actually lists certain kind of those views that we can grasp at as self. You know, he talks about a whole, you know, different permutations. He talks that, like, I view self with not self. Hmm. It's a belief that if you grasp it, or it's a view that if you grasp it, it will lead us to suffering. You know, or I view not self with self is a view that if you grasp it, it's going to lead us to suffering. You know, I view self with self is a view that if you grasp it, it's going to lead us to suffering. I view non-self with non-self is a view that if you grasp it, it's going to lead us to suffering. So even basically the, the view that I have no self you know, is a view that becomes and can become a very Buddhist kind of identification. No? And if you grasp with that, it's going to lead us to suffering. Along comes somebody who says, of course you've got a self. No, I haven't got a self. You know? I'm a Buddhist, I have no self. <laughs> and we can, of course, see what's actually happening there is, well, there's a lot of self 
isn't it, involved in, this, in the way we might even hold this kind of view of non-self. So what does it actually point to? It points to the fact that actually this, this self that the Buddha is actually talking about, we, might, we could actually also talk about it as selfing. It's actually more, it's like an activity. You can actually, if you look at the, directly at the actuality of your experience, you can actually notice something, that's, it's something that we are doing. It's almost like a, a cramp, a contraction in the mind. It's this, this movement of identifying, you know, identifying with something. But to something, it's, it's always, it's always it's an activity. You know? The Buddha called it grasping. And you can grasp at many different things. There's a lot of food that we can, can, can grasp. And the Buddha pointed out that views, any kind of views, is a very important food, nourishment for this, this hunger for our identification, for holding on to some, something, you know, some certainty of this is what I am or what I'm not. You know, or I'm nothing. There's another view. Um, so you probably, if you read carefully, you find that something that the Buddha did again and again in all different kinds of ways with all different kinds of views, where he noticed whatever kind of views people were holding on to, he wouldn't accept it as such. He would always point to the grasping itself, to what they were and how they were holding on to and how that is going to be the source of their suffering. So instead, the way the Buddha then talked or used this, this idea, this concept, if you like, um, of non-self is then in a very practical way. If he felt this was, this was appropriate, adequate at the situation, if the, his listeners were ready for this, he would then direct his attention to look directly at the experience, you know, to see what is, look at what is actually happening right now. And then you might remember, some of you will know, he used this two different ways, if you like, of slicing up the cake you know, of our present experience in either the six sense bases or what he would call the five khandhas. You know, basically as a way to help us to look a bit more closely you know, at the different elements, you know, different aspects you know, of what actually is our experience right now. Those are, of course, not really that different things that you can always that neatly really kind of slice up, but it just, it's just helpful. So that rather than having this being confronted with this mass of our experience as it you know, always impinges, as it were, on, on our consciousness, we can look at it little by little. You know? And then he would say, well, look at your experience, at the different elements. You know? Look at the body, look at physical experience, look at feeling, look at perception, look at, look at intentional mental activity, look at consciousness. Can you find anything in there which is stable? And so then, then he would let people investigate for themselves. Is there anything that's actually stable? No. So the inference being if there's something stable, that's the first basis that you need or something that you can actually rest an identification on. So is there something that I can really, that's stable enough that I can actually call mine? or me. If you can't find anything, so it leads us on. So what is, if, if, you can't, if you go through all of our experience and we can't find anything that we can actually hold on to, can actually rest uh, our identification on that, no ground to stand. Now in the end, the only thing that's, that's where I understand it, what's actually left to us, is that we have actually have to, rather than grasping a new view about it, we have to actually we don't have a choice. At some point, we just let go the very uh, activity of grasping or trying to stand our ide- land our identification on, on any actual element of experience right now. Mm. So if the people that the Buddha would be teaching at, at, particular, at that particular occasion would be ready for that, that would be a very direct way of teaching them about the connection between grasping and suffering. You know? 
and the letting go, you know, stopping to grasp, and the end of suffering. And so those are usually instances in the, in the canon, in the suttas, where you see when the Buddha teaches uh, in that way, teaches on not-self, you know, either going through the five khandas or through the six uh, um, sense bases, where if his, the listeners actually get the point, they let go of grasping, and then usually they have a realization, a deep realization. They become stream enters or, or completely free, enlightened. Now, this is usually kind of the last step, the, the ultimate teaching that the, that the Buddha has to give, which is not a very complex, ultimate, deep, obscure, metaphysical teaching about the nature of reality. And right, the opposite is one that goes very directly, immediately, about uh, our experience as we experience it right now. So it's all about our relationship with that experience. Well, that's where this, the Buddha's teaching about uh, non-self comes in. So it's always very direct, very, very practical, very pragmatical, and it's directed towards stopping that movement of grasping, of identifying. That was one of the great skills, it seems to be, uh, also uh, of the Buddha, and his capacity of being able to see where people would come to him with questions, people he was teaching, where they were at, how mature actually their mind was, what, what kind of level of teaching could they actually grasp, where they actually ready for this kind of teaching. So at sometimes, if he felt that wasn't the case, he would actually start with his, his teaching on a very different level. In order of his as we call maybe more the basics, he would start to teach about generosity mm-hmm. or teaching about sila, about uh, wholesome intentions, good actions. And, and when, when you see those kind of teachings, then the Buddha very much talked with, with using concepts of personality. He seemed to very much talk about self. You know, he was talking about somebody who is... Uh, engaging in this wholesome intention, good actions, and then would benefit, would receive the results from it, might have, you know, therefore, a better life in the future, might even have a better rebirth. You know, there comes in an apparently very solid concepts of a self, of a personality, who moves through the life, makes decisions, decides you know, uh, between the wholesome, the unwholesome, and then is going to inherit their actions even in a future life. You know? So... And then sometimes people get confused. They read those different things and think, well, you know, so because we, we tend to then, if it if just come from a, from a merely intellectual or rational approach, just trying to just see it all is a consistent edifice of, of a of logical kind of theory about the nature of practice or life or the universe or the self <laughs> or the not-self. Uh, and then we say, well, how do those things go together, you know? So then often these, these questions come from this mixing about teaching on non-self and well, what about then if there's no self, you know, who's actually going to be inheriting the, the good karma of this life and who's going to be reborn and those things. You know, there are actually two different levels of understanding or looking uh, on, on reality that, that get mixed together there. You know? And the Buddha usually would, you know, the, the way I, I, I understand it, if I read the, the scriptures, it's kind of very skillful knowing to whom to talk in which way, at what time. And sometimes, and even if somebody who wasn't actually ready to understand, like uh, directly, not as a theory, because you have to understand, you have to see, and you, you, can, confer, you can see that in the suttas if you look it up. The Buddha never talked about those things, like non-self, as he never gave it to people as a theory, as a package, you know, take this home, ponder about it. You know, when he talked, it was always very immediately, always pointing the people at it, you know, right when they were there in front of it, when they were ready for that. And sometimes, like with this Brahmin wanderer, if he felt he wasn't ready for that, he just even sometimes just rather 
refused to even talk about it because he felt he wasn't ready for that. It would just be, it just, just increases confusion. He needed other teachings at that time. And it's interesting that same Bandra actually comes, comes, there's a different sutta, he comes actually back to the Buddha and he gets later the whole gradual teaching and actually he realizes the, the truth, um, you know, according to the scriptures um, that the Buddha was talking about. So that's, that's why I think this is very, that's for me, this was an entry, you know, just contemplating about this, this question on Kalyanamita, about why that was actually a very important point for me to actually realize you know, that there is this, this contradiction, and that is therefore a very good reason. So in fact, the same for me was for, this, for the same reason as why this story of Ajahn Chah, I think, which is very popular, very often gets quoted, you know, um, who also seemed to be somebody, I've never lived, of course, with Ajahn Chah here, uh, but who seemed to be very skilled or capable about reading or where people are, picking people up, you know, where they are at, and giving actually teachings to them that were, that were relevant for them at, at the time. Uh, but also he was sometimes uh, criticized for apparently contradicting himself. So there's there's one, one passage, one of those recorded talks by uh, Ajahn Chah, where somebody asks him, so sometimes you seem to be saying this and sometimes you're saying right the opposite, you know, how, are you not contradicting yourself? And uh, Ajahn Chah explained it uh, back with his images. For, me, for him it is it's like seeing people, you know, being on the straight and narrow, you know, the path of practice towards liberation, and he sees sometimes people veering off to the right, so he tells him you have to go further to the left. And sometimes he sees people veering off to the left, so he tells him you have to go to the right. You know? So those teachings you know, are appropriate according to the person and to the, to the time, you know, time and place, and to the circumstances. That's something we have to understand. And that's precisely you know, why, and also I think it, this is such an important thing for us in our practice to have noble friends, noble friendship, because that's what, of course, uh, noble friends can do for us. You know? and, the, and that's what's in, in, in which sense, of course, teachers for us, that's what they are for us, noble, noble friends, and that's how they see themselves and their effort, in the sense that they can actually uh, guide us on our way at the time, you know, for, to, to read us, to see where we are, and give us the, the advice that we need at a particular time. In order to be able to actually benefit you know, and, and appreciate and take in those kind of teachings, like from a teacher with Ajahn Chah, to be able to actually see that, feel that, and allow it in and perceive it, you know, benefit from it as noble friendship, uh, what is what we need? Well, we need something I think we call it's trust, isn't it? And you can see if you read about Ajahn Chah, about his life, about his teachings, and you know, he sometimes uh, he could be very loving, and, um, very kind, but he could also be very tough. And in fact, Ajahn Chah, apparently, is one who said, like, in order to be a good teacher, you have to be willing uh, to be hated uh, by your disciples. You know? Because the way Ajahn Chah saw his function, or, or an important part of his function as a noble friend, was um, to, to, to sometimes you know, point out that to those people who came to him were really committed, really wanted to know, really wanted to go all the way to point, point out the shortcomings, to point out the blind spots, and to push them you know, where they maybe wouldn't have the energy or the will uh, or the, the courage to push themselves. Well, that was part of his, his, his function as a noble friend in the service that he could do to the people who came to him for, for advice, for teachings. This, of course, only works, you're only willing to take it if you actually trust, you know, and if you, if, you, if you remember some of those uh, teaching stories from Ajahn Chah, then you realize that 
people who would be willing to, to take that kind of treatment. When Ajahn Chah was, was asked, you know, what, is his, what his style of teaching was, he, he replied, this is tied with Toramon, isn't it? Torture. You know, he was teaching his disciples by torturing them. If, if you're willing to take this, this torture, well, you have to trust, of course, that, that Ajahn Chah knew what he was doing and that he was actually coming from compassion and that he would actually uh, come from compassion and from wisdom. No. And those are the teachings that are usually not recorded uh, that, or the occasions. There, of course, there would have been quite a few people also who, who wouldn't have that trust and would have said, well, what does he think he is? You know, I, I'm not going to take this treatment from anybody. And so those people would have left. No. Or hopefully, maybe found, found a different teacher or a situation that they could trust so that they could benefit because obviously then, because they didn't have that trust, then also they couldn't benefit from, from those teachings. No. So that's a... That's a, 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 an important or difficult uh, point also of, of, to contemplate, and also how this noble friendship you know, means kind of availability for true relationship depends on this capacity of ourselves to actually invest that trust. And of course, the, the Buddha never taught blind trust or blind faith, but you know, it should go together with discernment. You know, actually, ideally, it should become more, more confirmed trust. You know, we always have to give maybe a little bit of advanced investment in trust, but then we, we have to check out, you know, is this actually a good investment? You know, we also have to need, need to use the discernment, both of our mind and of our heart, to check out. And the Buddha gave different, um, different criteria, sometimes also, to, to check how can we actually know whether a teacher or a friend really is trustworthy or is a noble friend. In the, in the, in the scriptures, there are a couple of particular lists, so where the Buddha is talking about the seven qualities of a noble friend, Kalyanamita. Uh, see whether I get them together. One of them, the first one is, he said, like a, a trustworthy noble friend. They are endearing. Um, they are worthy of respect. They are cultured and worthy of emulation. They are a good counselor, patient listeners. Uh, they never admonish without good reason and don't uh, spur us onwards to, to useless kind of ends or pointless kind of pursuits. That's one list. And the, the other list uh, that he gave is uh, that, that noble friends, they do what is hard to do, they give what is hard to give, they endure what's hard to endure, they share their secrets with you, interesting, <laughs> they, they keep your secrets, and they, they never look down on us if we are not doing very well, and they don't uh, let us down if we meet uh, misfortune. So those are interesting qualities that we can... Uh, reflect upon uh, if you want to uh, check out you know, our own friends and our own friendship. What, what, what are those are actually worthy friendships that are worth cultivating? And what are those qualities in ourselves that we can cultivate so that we can offer uh, noble or beautiful friendships? And so if you, if you want to look those up, they are from the Anguttara Nikaya, the book of sevens, because there are seven qualities. If you have this trust, if you're willing to invest it, then we can enter into a relationship with somebody and then we can uh, benefit uh, from this relationship if it's, it's a relationship of noble friendship, if it's a teaching relationship. Mm. And it, it, that goes uh, directly to, together, I think, with the way uh, the Buddha talked about Kalyanamita, why he emphasized it so much and his way of teaching because that's the way he saw his role and he saw his way of teaching. And I think it's interesting how you can see how if we don't have that trust, you know, how that goes, can go together with 
is the right opposite, which, which can, lead us, can lead to, instead of um, entering into this kind of tr relationship, we then uh, can rely on theories or systems instead. You know, it's like the other side of the medal um, uh, point to, to contemplate. Uh, what actually happens or what can happen, or what I feel I sometimes can see, if this trust is not there, if you don't have this trust or the capacity of, of entering a relationship with, with noble friends, with the teacher, with the living tradition, we then, instead, we will often then invest our trust, say, in scripture, in, in truth that is uh, it's verified you know, in books. And that's interesting, if we just, if we just trust in scripture, uh, then ultimately uh, we can just really end up trusting in our own opinions, to a large extent. I mean, often people say, well, you go to the scriptures because then you go to the real teachings. But if you, if you look at, you know, if you get different, different kind of teachers and you see, you know, how really what we're getting out of uh, a book, you know, the, the canon, is always, of course, our interpretation of what we're reading. You know, ultimately, we're really falling back on our own opinions. And in my experience, I often find something if, if people just come, if, if you just come you know, with scripture, it's often we come from, the, from a point where we, we, we can actually use that to keep people actually at bay. You know, we use it to often can, can use scripture, quoting scriptures in order to pigeonhole people you know, or, or judge people or situation, you know, ah, but the book says this and what says this. And, and often behind that you can actually see there's actually a lack of, of trust and actually engaging directly with, in a relationship uh, with people. And probably because in order to actually um, truly engage with people in relationship also with our own heart, you know, the scriptures, if you, just, if you just go by the texts, then we, we tend, by default, always come into the head, in the thinking. You know? If we want to uh, go into a friendship and relationship, we have to go into the heart. You know? So it's just a few reflections on those uh, theme of um, noble friendship. I find that over the years I was very, very pleased actually for being able at, at crucial times in my life to actually um, invest enough faith to actually make that step from you know, the initial, my initial interest uh, in, in Buddhism and reading books about and, and finding really that, well, I couldn't beat the Buddha there on the Four Noble Truths and things, so this is something to, um, to pick up. And, and figure out and practice this is going to lead to, to my, my benefit, something that's really worthwhile. But to see that we're going to have to go a step beyond that. You know, if you just stay in this, this world of my own you know, interpretation, apprehension of the Buddhist teaching out of a book, I have to find kind of real people, a living tradition of people that I can actually trust, that I feel who embody this kind of teaching and make it actually relevant or can make it relevant for me you know, where I am now, 2,500 years after the Buddha, you know, in, in, in the West, in this society, so that I can actually make use of it in, in a fruitful way and, and, and live this. And that, of course, to me, hasn't come through a book. I haven't come to Chithurst or here with a book, you know, checking, all right, oh, the Buddha says this is like the Buddha said, well, this doesn't, the Buddha said something, this, is, this doesn't fit or something. No, it, it didn't work that way. Not actually for me, uh, it's always been through, through, through real people, you know, first through a um, actually, lay teacher, Sri Lankan, Godwin, Samaranathana, who I just, you know, just came to my hometown, teach a meditation retreat, and I thought, Vipassana retreat's a good thing to do. And I came there, but the thing that really took me in was, was him as a, as a person. You know, what the, the feeling, the trust, the picking up that this person really has what I'm looking for, you know, which 
a book cannot have that. No, especially with anything. You know, if you like uh, reading uh, about insight, is very different from having an insight. Isn't it? The same as reading about anger is very different from from feeling anger in your heart. No, and so the same there. You know, this wasn't just the, the teaching that I can read in a book, but this this, this person this was was actually living those teachings. And from there, uh, very quickly, I came then to the, the idea of, of uh, tr trying this out um, with all that I, I could invest, you know, doing it full-time, as it were, and, and uh, uh, becoming a, a monk. And again, it was first through, through books, but not so much uh, scriptures, but you know, the, coming across the teachings of Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Sumedho that made me particularly interested in this tradition. And uh, through meeting Ajahn Sumedho himself, who came actually to Hamburg to teach there. And in the same way, um, as I said at the beginning, um, later on, about 10 years ago now, when I met uh, Ajahn uh, Munindo in, in New Zealand, and I found this way of relating very directly to him, not just what he had to say, but what he seemed to um, be able to live, you know, what, what came you know, across for me, if you like, in a relationship kind of way, that is what I particularly valued, and which is what um, made me come here. And I have certainly never regretted that decision, and so I've been very pleased to be here. And even though I'm, I'm feeling now uh, it was a time, uh, so it's good for me to just move away for a while after nine years of practicing here and just uh, try a bit, um, you know, intensified version of uh, solitary practice in the forest in Chittos, where fortunately they have this kind of possibility available. I do uh, already actually uh, look forward to coming back. <laughs> I, I have very much uh, uh, grown a, a fondness of this place and this the very, um, not just th this place, but also the very idea of being part over a long time in, in a place to be able to contribute to the community and to the development of this place. Uh, that feeling that this is such a, a wonderful resource really to offer, you know, just, just to be able to keep it going, also for the wider community, you know, for, for you who come here, for anybody, anywhere who can actually come here and make use of this, this place and be able to actually serve that, is something that uh, fills me with, with uh, great joy. So I just hope that uh, when I come back uh, next year that uh, I... I see all of you again, that you're still at it and keep going, um, and that we can uh, keep, share in this, this effort, uh, in, in the spirit of um, noble friendship, that we can all be uh, good, beautiful, noble friends uh, for each other uh, on this, this, this path uh, following the teachings of the Buddha. So thank you for your attention. Hmm.